Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, we start with Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim and his State of the City address yesterday. Got Renu Bakshi standing by to discuss. Have a listen to Ken Sim here. The mayor here says he wants to bring some fun back to Vancouver. Have a listen. We'll also look at um, accelerating the hosting of major events in our city. And those aren't just limited to sporting events. They're events of all uh, types. Okay, you've often heard Vancouver called the no-fun city. A lot of big events have been cancelled. The new mayor wants to bring back some of the fun in the city. He had lots more to say in his speech yesterday, too. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Renu Bakshi. Renu is a journalist, media trainer, crisis manager. She's a columnist at Business Intelligence for BC. You can find her great work there. Renu, thank you for coming on today. Hey, thanks a lot. You're going to get stuck with a bit of a gravelly voice. I woke up sick today. Oh, you sound fine to me. You sound fine to me. I think we'll we'll muddle through here. Okay, Renu, let's talk about the the mayor's speech yesterday, Vancouver Board of Trade, his annual State of Vancouver speech. What do you think about, first of all, bringing big events back to the city? He said yesterday Vancouver's got a bad reputation as a no-fun city. Do you think that's true? I agree with uh, our mayor about the no-fun city. I love the idea of bringing big events back. I liked his comment about bringing the swagger back. Um, the big events, they have, a, a, you know, benefits economically for our city, and that's something we need post-COVID. We need post-pandemic recovery. And that's one way to uh, bring back business into the city and as well change that impression that, you know, if you go to TripAdvisor, people have been saying stay away from Vancouver. Uh, there's been a lot of fear in the city, and I think inviting the world back to see it for itself can only benefit our city in terms of uh, economics. Okay, well, we'll see if you can deliver on that. Uh, I, that line about swagger, he wants Vancouver to be a city with swagger. That kind of jumped out at me too, Renew. Let's have a listen to what he had to say here. So here's Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim yesterday. I envision a Vancouver in the not-so-distant future. That is super exciting again. A Vancouver with a renewed swagger. As you can tell by the image there, a Vancouver with a buzz about it. There's, ele- there's an electric feeling in the air. Think of how people felt when they would fly into Hong Kong in the early 90s, or when they fly into Miami, Florida, or Austin, Texas, or London, England today. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what he's talking about here, Renu. So he wants Vancouver to be more like Miami and Austin, Texas? What, what is he talking about here? Mayor Sin is talking about just bringing back that electricity and that buzz, that vigor of, uh, hey, happy to live and be and work in Vancouver. When I wrote my column for Business in Vancouver newspaper post-election, I talked about how it felt to me and to many of my uh, friends and peers that we were 
emerging from a fetal position under the former regime and drawing our opening our curtains and seeing a new dawn, uh, especially for uh, females. It felt like we had been living in fear. I mean, everybody felt lots of people felt they were living in fear. But I know women who were posting on social media that they were buying bear spray. And so I think what he means by that swagger is just bring that confidence of uh, being happy and feeling safe uh, and being excited about Vancouver. Talking to Renu Bakshi from Business in Vancouver magazine about Ken Sim, the state of Vancouver address here. Let's have a listen to another clip from the mayor's speech. Renu, get your thoughts. So here is Ken Sim talking about business in the city, and he wants the economy, he wants the city city hall to be working more closely with business. Here's what he had to say. Let me get your thoughts. The question we should be asking at city hall is how can we help you and your business succeed. And we intend to focus on the big issues facing our small businesses, namely, and by the way, I got to stress, not limited to um, regulatory red tape, safety and security, uh, street vibrancy and affordability. Okay, so he talked a lot about making it quicker to get city permits. I mean, you're a business writer, Renew. What do you hear from the business community on this? Everybody, again, is invigorated by uh, Mayor Sim and ABC Council's position on growing business. This ABC uh, majority is, in my view, they're ushering in an era of post-traumatic growth. So far as I'm concerned, you know, you mentioned I'm a crisis manager. We've been responding to, we've been responding to a crisis through fear. And that psychology of fear actually creates panic and hampers and prolongs our recovery uh, Mayor Sim and ABC, in, it, I've experienced so far that they're ushering in post-traumatic growth, which means positive changes that result from crisis. You know, whether that's personal strength and resilience, whether that's new spiritual practices for businesses, how to grow their business, how to create a resilient workforce. You know, in Vancouver, how not to lose people to the suburbs, how to keep them here. So yeah. he's uh, creating an excitement and a sense of positivity and operating from a psychology of optimism rather than fear. And that's what we need now to experience some post-traumatic growth. That's how we're going to advance and grow Vancouver. What are some of the, the actual deliverables that you would like to see or you think the business community in Vancouver would like to see? Like he talked about the waiting period to get building permits and other type of business permits in the city. I mean, I guess that's one measurable outcome. Like, oftentimes, I'll listen to these political speeches, and I'll say, okay, I mean, this all sounds good, I guess, but what is the actual hard, deliverable outcome you're trying to achieve here that we can measure and see if you kept your promises? Like, what would you what would you like to see? You want these permits, like the city, to start issuing building permits quicker? Yeah, so he's already, he and his, his uh, council has already put measures in place to hire the 100 police officers and the 100 mental health nurses that they promised through the campaign. That was big for public safety um, and for health and wellness in general. And they've already shown that they are putting tangible processes in place to achieve those goals. When it comes to the permitting process, yes, it's slow. Uh, you know, and as, as permits are, are lagging in bureaucracy, uh, the cost of building is increasing. It doesn't help anybody. And so I, I, I have a lot of confidence in this uh, new regime that they will be putting tangible steps in place. They will be reviewing the bureaucracy that's holding these permits back for new businesses, for building, and, and seeing where the redundancies are, seeing where the holdups are, and trying to remove those hurdles to make sure that the process is streamlined. I don't think this is just talk. 
I mean, we got to give them time as well. They're just in the initial stages. Yeah. They're reviewing yeah. these processes. And once they can review them, it's like crisis management. You review where your vulnerabilities are, and then you try to fix those vulnerabilities and create efficiencies. That's what, uh, that's what we need to give them time to do. Here's another one, Renew, that it got a lot of, this was a popular one with the business crowd he was speaking to yesterday, getting rid of that cup fee in Vancouver. Here's Mayor Ken Sim on that. Have a listen. Everyone here in Vancouver loves the environment, but we can make a distinction between, you know, things that are pragmatic and not. And what we've heard from the business community and residents is the cup fee just ain't working, that it's punitive. And so that's why we're committed to getting rid of this, uh, the cup fee by this summer. Okay. Okay. I got some applause in the room. The 25 cent disposable cup fee. Renew, I think this is a no brainer. I don't think it's working either. Get rid of it. What do you think? I agree. It's not working. I, I want to know where all that money's going. It's funny. It's it's funny that um, he brought that up in a city that is so uh, passionate about the environment, and he got applause because I think it's something we're all thinking, but are afraid to say because it feels like it's an anti-environment position. Yeah. But I agree with you. I agree with uh, Mayor Sim. It's not working, uh, and uh, we need to do something different, something more pragmatic, as he said. I I um. I agree with him. I'm laughing as well because it's something that I would never have said publicly out of fear. Yeah, no, I think I think if he does get rid of that by the summer, I don't think there'll be too many tears shed for the cup fee. Renu, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Thank you very much, Mike. Appreciate it. Here we go now with the expanding world of tipping. Are we reaching the tipping point on tipping now? Now, have you noticed more businesses are asking you for a tip at the checkout, like at the liquor store or a drive through oil change place? I got prompted for a tip the other day. That's called tip creep. More places are asking for tips. And then you've got the higher amounts that are being suggested for a tip used to be 15% was your standard tip. No, no, no. That's bottom of the barrel stuff. Now, now it's like 18, 20, even 30% is a uh, asked for tip on a keypad. Now that's called tipflation, but check this one out. Now, should you be required to tip a robot, a robot? Are you kidding me? This happened to a Vancouver woman recently. She went to a local restaurant. Her name is Christina McNeely. Now, they've got one of those roll-around robots in there. So this thing rolls up to your table with your food. And she wasn't happy to be asked to leave a tip at the end of her meal. Here she is talking to City News. You served yourself because you're taking it from the robot and putting it on your table. We didn't see the um, server until we flagged down for our receipt. And then we went to pay. And then she said, you don't tip. <laughs> and I said, how do you tip a robot? Okay. Uh, how do you, <laughs> how do you tip a robot? Well, uh, the restaurant is saying, well, the tip is not for the robot. It's for the humans who control the robot and make your food in the back of the restaurant. Now, this is not an isolated case. In Las Vegas, they have a bar that is staffed by robot bartenders. The place is called the Tipsy Robot. It is kind of an appropriate name because check this viral story out. Guy goes into this Vegas bar, orders a drink from a robot bartender, doesn't like being asked for a tip. Have a listen to this. 
How much should we be tipping our servers? Is it 15%, 18%? What if your server is a robot? Would you still tip them? A video recently posted by TikTok user Upton is sparking debate after they went to a Las Vegas bar called Tipsy Robot where drinks are made by robots. They were slapped with a 10% service charge on a $16 drink with no option to opt out. Okay, so here we go now. Should you tip a robot? You know, there's a theory out there that at some point, robots are going to become smarter than the scientists that make them. They will enslave humanity. Maybe one way to start that would be to start giving them a tip. This has gotten uh, this viral story out of Vegas now. A lot of people asking questions whether you should a a tip a robot. Maybe you should not tip the Terminator. Don't tip a robot. Now, again, like the restaurant in Vancouver, the owner of this Vegas bar is saying, hang on a second here now. The tip is not for the robot. The robot's not going to use that money to do a systems upgrade on, on, his, on his memory. The tip is for the humans in the back of the bar. The guy who runs the bar in Vegas says, look, I've got eight employees. They're all working hard. That's where the tip goes, not to the robot. But it sure starts the conversation, doesn't it? Does this take it to a whole new level now? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Mike Von Masso, professor at the University of Guelph. He's done a lot of work in this area. Hey, Mike, thanks for coming on today. Well, thanks for having me. Okay, Mike, tipping a robot, like we've talked about this before, this takes this whole tipping thing to a whole new level. I mean, tipping a robot, what do you think of that? Well, I think, uh, frankly, I don't think I should tip a robot, uh, but there's a but there, Mike. And, and I think the but is, as with every situation where I'm asked for a tip, I always ask who's getting this tip. So if you're tipping a robot uh, server, as an example, is there someone back behind there cooking? Is there someone behind, back behind there doing things that isn't making a lot of money? Uh, and so, uh, or is this just going to the organization, to the management, to the ownership? I think that that's an important distinction to make. All of that said, um, you know, maybe we should be going to a model where, uh, where we don't have to have a conversation of who's getting the tip or whether it's the robot or what, and, and, and just say, let's pay enough so that the people who are working are getting a fair wage and the robots who are working don't deserve a tip at all. Yeah, the guy who runs this bar in Vegas said precisely that, Mike. He goes, look, I've got eight people on my staff. They're working hard in the back here to, to make this place run. The tip is not for the robot. It's for the humans, right? So does that make it any better, though? Like, I can understand if people are being served by a robot, they don't want to leave a tip. Well, and, and, and to, to me, again, it gets to, to what I said before, Mike, is we've got this model where we're saying we, we should be paying the staff so that, that because they're working hard. And, and, and the truth is that owner should be paying the staff a fair wage because they're working hard. And we should be paying more for those drinks that the robot is serving us. And, and to me, that is a much more straightforward. It's a much more fair and it's a much more predictable way to go about it. So I think the, 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 the problem with tipping the robot is it becomes invisible as to who's getting the money. It's not obvious who's getting the money. You know, when we're yeah. tipping in a restaurant, we at least assume it's going to the server. It's not always true. In this case, we have no idea if that owner is actually giving it to his staff or if he's putting it in his pocket. And, and I think that 
sort of lack of transparency is a fundamental problem that's getting worse as we're tipping in sort of more uh, extreme, if you will, circumstances. Let's talk a little bit, Mike, about how more businesses are requesting tips now, this tip creep, as it has been called. So lots more stores are having putting that tip option on the checkout keypad now. The liquor store, you go through the liquor store, you go through a, a drive through oil change. Uh, I went to a, a Dairy Queen joint the other day, and there was a request for a tip after at the checkout. You know, there's lots of places asking for tips now. Uh, what a dry cleaner. A, a listener told me he got asked for a tip at the dry cleaner. What do you think of that? Well, I, 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 th- I think it's, a, I think it's it, as, I, as you said, it's this sort of creep that, that, that has the potential to turn us off tipping entirely. Someone told me yeah. yesterday they got prompted for tipping uh, at the grocery store. Now, let's oh. be clear. A lot of these, a lot of these people aren't making a lot of money, and and would probably appreciate, and it would be fair for them to make a little bit more money. But is this the best model for us to be doing it, or again go back to should they be paid a, a you know a living wage, and we have to pay a little bit more to go through there? Because I think where we're getting to this point of tip fatigue, where where everyone's asking us, it's becoming a broader and broader model. We've got some of us who are free riders who don't tip at all, others who feel sort of more Canadian guilt and tip more. I'm just not convinced it's the right approach to making sure that, that people who aren't making very much are getting paid a fair amount. How about the tip inflation that we're seeing? Like the suggested tip range seems to be going up quite steadily like it used to be the old days 15 percent was a standard tip i remember that and then it was no no like 20 percent is a good tip okay so i became a 20 percent tipper in a restaurant but now when you go through some of these businesses there are suggested tips for 25 percent or even 30 percent well and i've seen i've seen the bottom of the range be as high as 22 percent in some places so and, and, and this sort of phenomenon called nudging is they, they, they establish a, no one, a low one, and most of us don't want to be that low person, and so they sort of push us a little bit higher. And I think that that's happening increasingly. Uh, and again, we're, we're starting to see, that we, we're in the process of studying it, but, but so far, anecdotally, people are saying, that's starting to push me too far, and maybe, and, and the research suggests, if we, if we try and nudge people too far they react in the other extreme so this may actually become counterproductive for some of these organizations where people tip less than they might otherwise because Mm. they feel they're being pushed into an area that they're not comfortable okay mike last question for you what about the sort of guilt trip uh, element to this and you touched on this briefly like a lot of times you'll get to the checkout you're presented with that tip option and like you're like oh it can be an uncomfortable moment, right? You don't want to be a cheapo. You don't want to be a bad person. You kind of feel guilty. You think people are feel guilted out into guilted well, into think, tipping? I, I, I think that's exactly what's happening. You know, it's, it, think back. It used to be, do you want to tip? And then you got to enter it. Now it's, it, here's how much you should tip. And we're getting that in other places where perhaps there was a little jar at the coffee shop that you could put some change in. Now they're prompting you on a percentage. And remember that percentage is on, on, on the tax as well. And so it, I, I think we need to remember that we're, as Canadians, we, we're, we're inclined to guilt that this is a social norm. It isn't a rule. 
And, and we should remember we're in control. We can make the decisions we want to make. Uh, and this isn't a law. This isn't a regulation. This is, uh, this is a completely voluntary thing. So be uh, objective and, and, and make the decision for yourself and don't feel guilted or pressured into anything. Mike, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having me. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, here we go now. Should traffic fines be means tested? So based on your income, should a rich driver pay more for a traffic ticket than a low-income driver? So here's the argument here now. Let's say a police officer catches you using your phone at a red light. Well, that's a $368 ticket for distracted driving. Now, for a lot of people, I'd say probably most people, that's a lot of money. That's a significant whack in the wallet. But what if you're driving a Ferrari or a Lamborghini? You're a rich businessman, you're a trust fund billionaire. What do you care? But a $368 fine. That's nothing. So the answer is you bring in a means test. You make the rich pay more. Is that a good idea? Let's discuss it with Saanich Councillor Teal Phelps Bondaroff. He likes this idea. Councillor, thank you very much for coming on today. Good talking to you this morning. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks very much for doing this. And so give me your, your pitch on this. You believe this is what we should do, right? We should have means-tested traffic tickets, correct? Well, the motion I presented in front of council was to ask the province to explore this policy. So the motion was a resolution that would have gone on to the Union of British Columbia Municipalities. And if it had passed there, it would go on to ask the province to explore the policy. I think it's a great policy. It's worked in other countries. But obviously, we want to make sure that we were you know, exploring how it worked here in British Columbia and you know, addressing some of the challenges that are inherent in these kinds of policies. But yes, I think it's a great policy. And it deals with two problems with our current traffic fine system. And you already mentioned them, right? The first one is that it fails to serve as an active deterrent, an effective deterrent for the very wealthy. And it also disproportionately impacts and punishes low-income people. You know, $368 might be a lot of money to someone, but it may also be the difference between affording groceries that week for someone, or it could cost someone their house because they can't afford their rent. So it's one of those things where what we want is we want fines to exert the same deterrent force on all people equally. And that means making it based on income because a hundred bucks means something differently to someone who's making a million bucks a year as compared to someone who's living on the edge of poverty. Okay. So you argue that there's a disproportionate impact here, but on the other side, you could say that this is a totally proportionate and equal. I mean, a fine is a fine. An offense is an offense, whether you're driving, you know, a beat up old, car that's worth a few hundred bucks or you're driving a, a high-end sports car if you commit if you run a red light you've both committed the same offense so why should yeah. it not be the same ticket well the 
the, the question is what, we, whether we want our tickets to be effective or not, right? So, hundred again, if you give yeah. out a $100 ticket to someone who's making a million bucks, sure, the value is the same. But if we actually want to have the same deterrent effect and stop that person from breaking the law in the future, the number is going to have to change based on income. I mean, this is basically, you know, the idea of whether we actually want our fines to work. You know, and in the goal of a traffic fine, there's some punishment there. But the main goal is to improve road safety. And so what we want is we want someone to think twice next time they're going to run that red light and think, ah, I got a ticket. And like, give me some, I'll give you some examples here because you know, sure. people don't quite realize how this works around the world in some places. So, you know, countries like Finland, Denmark, Sweden and Switzerland have policies like this. And what you see is every so often a news story pops up. There's been a lot about NHL hockey players for some reason. But, you know, for example, um, in 2015, a Finnish businessman, um, he has an annual, annual income of 6.5 million euro. He was going 65 in a 50 zone and he got dinged with a 54,000 euro ticket. You know, this is the kind of person where a $300 ticket might mean a slightly less good dessert wine. Um, but he's going to think <laughs> twice before he, uh, you know, he, he speeds again because $54,000 might be a particularly nice uh, Greek vacation. Uh, the world mm. record, by the way, for the highest traffic fine comes out of Switzerland from 2010. A wealthy young motorist, um, he was caught doing 290 kilometers. That was 170 kilometers over the speed limit. And he was fined $1.2 million USD, or the equivalent Whoa. thereof. You know, oh, you're going to think twice next time you speed, right? But someone who's driving that fast, you know, <laughs> they're probably picking up the check faster than they're uh, checking the speed limit. Okay. Speaking of Finland, where they have this kind of means-tested system here, Counselor, so let me play a clip here for you from uh, a news clip here, news report. So NHL player Rasmus Ristolainen, who is from Finland, and he got racked up for speeding in his home country of Finland. And it's a means-tested program there. The fine is based on your income. This guy makes a lot of money. He's a professional hockey player. Have a listen to this report. Names on the Buffalo Sabres had to pay a pretty hefty fine for speeding in his home country. A news outlet in Finland reports defenseman Rasmus Ristolainen was caught driving 50 miles per hour in a 25-mile-per-hour zone. And because Finland hands out fines based on income, that got him a $135,000 fine. Whoa, $135,000 for a speeding ticket for going 50, 50 in a 25 zone. Teal, that's more than I make in a couple of years or more. You know, that's a lot of money. And uh, so, you know, hopefully, you know, Rasmus is going to be thinking twice next time he, uh, you know, he wants to push down that accelerator, you know. <laughs> and, and what you see in Finland, so Finland has had what they call day fines since the 1920s and their system is based on income but what they do is they, they take your income they estimate your daily spending money based on that income they divide that in half and then based on the severity of the infraction they assign a number of days that they can then you know withhold that amount of spending money from you and so you know the amount doesn't sh uh, doesn't have a cap but the number of days would have a cap so the most severe uh, infraction would be I'd say 120 days and then they would just calculate that based on your your income Okay, it sounds like a very complicated system, though. I mean, right now, I guess it's fairly streamlined. If a cop catches you doing something wrong, you get written up with a ticket, that's it, done and dusted. Now you're talking mm -hmm. about doing calculations on a person's income, and who mm -hmm. knows, that can get very comp complex. Doesn't this create a lot of bureaucracy? Yeah, so there, is a, there are a couple challenges with the policy, and that is one of them. Like, there are some, some technical challenges. So this is sort of the intention behind the motion was to ask the province to explore the policy because there, there's that challenge. There's a couple other ones as well, right? So, for example, there are people who are very wealthy who hide their income in shell corporations. Um, uh -huh. And so those folks, 
you know, they might be trying to shirk um, their traffic fines and obviously their taxes as well. Um, and then there's other questions, you know, for example, what if you have a young member of a family who personally has a low income, but the family makes a lot of money and buys them a nice fancy sports car and they're out speeding on the highways and car, you know, racing and things like that. And that's a challenge that needs to be overcome. And then, of course, there's the challenge of data privacy protection, right? You know, we, that's very important for folks and it is very important. And so, you know, it's one of those policies that you want to do right, and you also want to explore if it works, you know, well within the BC context. So that was the intention behind my motion. And I um, know all these, these, the question we have to ask, what we'd hope the province would ask would be, yes, there are some, some technical challenges, and there might be a bit more, uh, you know, calculations and things, and whether that was worth it or not. And that's kind of a cost-benefit analysis that would have to be run. Okay. What's interesting, though, is that some of the countries that have this policy, and again, the policy isn't necessarily the only cause for their road safety records, don't get me wrong, but some of these countries have pretty good road safety records and, um, and comparable populations to BC. So, you know, for Denmark, mm. which has a comparable population of 5.8 million people, they had 163 road fatalities in 2020. Compared to British Columbia, we're about 5 million uh, folks as well, we had 249 deaths. So... Mm. I'm not saying that this is the only thing that's making roads safer in Denmark, but they're clearly doing something a bit better than us. And uh, my, my municipality, Saanich, committed to Vision Zero uh, in the last council, and that is a goal to have zero fatalities or major injuries on our roads. And we're not achieving that right now. And so for me, the goal is to explore as many solutions as possible, and this is an innovative solution that I was going to ask the province to explore. Okay. What would you say to a critic, and I'm sure we will hear from them today, who think who would say, hang on a second here now. This sounds to me more like some sort of social engineering experiment here and not really about reducing road fatalities or creating a deterrent for, for someone speeding. It sounds like a, a wealth redistribution scheme. So you've got this Finnish hockey player who signed a $32 million contract. All right, let's go out and whack him if we catch him speeding and redistribute that wealth. What would you say to that argument? That's what this is about, not really about reducing deaths on the highway. Well, I guess there's a couple couple of responses. The first question I'd ask that person would be, do we want to give people who are very wealthy license to break the law? Because that's, that, that's the case right now with, with some traffic fines and how they're allocated. There's still a point system, don't get me wrong. But if you've got you know, there's certain tickets that you don't lose points on, and um, this policy, by the way, paired well with the policy I was presenting on traffic cameras. And um, so my first question would be, like, do you think everyone should follow the law? And if someone has lots of money, do they get special privileges? Um, but then the other question, of course, would be the obverse of that, which is, you know, do you think that people with very low income should face disproportionately impactful fines? And the final question would be, do you want your fine system to actually work to deter people from breaking the law. Now, some people have made the argument that traffic fines don't work, and that's a whole other debate. But if we're going to give out fines to try to change driver behavior so that they follow the law and our roads are safer, then we want to give out effective fines. Otherwise, we're simply, you know, again, hurting people with very low incomes and you know, doing nothing to people with incredibly high incomes. Okay, Councillor, you certainly got a lot of people talking with your motion here. Thank you very much for coming on to talk about it today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to folks' uh, comments and everything, and uh, nice talking to you. Okay, here we go now with Justin Bieber's big payday here. The Canadian singer and heartthrob inks a $200 million deal to sell his complete song catalog 
to Hypnosis, which is a UK investment company. Is this a good deal for them? Let's check in with Eric Alper now, music publicist and commentator. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Eric. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on. Two hundred million dollars for the Beebs? Really? That sounds like that sounds like a lot. Do you think they overpaid? Not even close. Okay. In fact, what they get is probably one of, if not the biggest artists um, in the world under the age of 35. I mean, you can probably put Drake in there, uh, Ariana Grande, and a couple of others, but it comes with 290 songs from his catalog, and that also happens to include everything. His Hot 100 Hits, which he has 26 top 10s. He's got eight number one songs. He's got about 13.5 million sales behind him. He's got just under 20 billion streams. So not only did Hypnosis basically buy the rights to those songs, but what comes in is the master recordings and neighboring rights, which means that they can now do what they want to do with them. So maybe expect to see and hear a little bit more Justin Bieber in television commercials, in movies, on TV shows, on Broadway, perhaps. I mean, people kind of laughed when somebody came up with ABBA and Mamma Mia on Broadway. And, you know, who's to say <laughs> that somewhere down the road that won't happen for Justin Bieber as well? But no, I mean, the other, the other big thing about it is that what this does, and I know that he's really young and I know he's fairly new. I mean, he's yeah. not a veteran out of the end of the way that we think of like Neil Young and Springsteen, who also sold their catalog. But what it does is it sets now a bar for everybody else from that generation to follow. So if I'm Billie Eilish or Ariana Grande or Pink, I'm taking a look at this and saying, okay, so where do I now compete with Justin Bieber, am I now going to ask for $200 million? Probably I'm not going to get it, because that's what he got, and he has this many hits. So he's actually set the standard for his generation of artists to either go oh. higher or lower, rather than, you know, maybe playing behind the eight ball a little bit. Okay, well, you make a good argument there that it's a good deal for this company, Eric, and, and maybe I'm betraying my own generation here, but, you know, yeah. I think of an artist like, you mentioned Bruce Springsteen, how he sold his catalog. You know, Bob Dylan, it wasn't that long ago he sold his songs, his song catalog for $300 million. So you've got Justin Bieber not too far behind. I mean, come on, Justin Bieber's no Bob Dylan here. This guy's, you know, I know he's got a lot of songs, but it's not blowing in the wind. Ah, but that's where that's where you and I are old. Because yeah, right. <laughs> there's, you know, to to the generation who's like eight years old to let's say twenty five. Um, Justin Bieber is just as important to them as Bob Dylan was to us forty years ago. Um, so you know, there's the thought process that this company who who are buying up these song titles and the catalog their investors are absolutely going to want their investment back and as fast as possible. So where the Bob Dylan, the Neil Young and Springsteen and Phil Collins and Genesis, we might be hearing their music for a hundred years from now, like classical musicians down the road. There is no reason to believe that the generation that, um, that Justin Bieber is from will be hearing his music for the next 30, 40, 50 years. They said that about the Beatles. They said there's no way that this band is going to be around for three years, so what are you going to do after this? Um, and so look at them now. So uh, it, it comes down to the fact that uh, you know, teenagers and young adults are going to be listening to Drake and Bieber and Ariana Grande at their weddings, at their bar mitzvahs, yeah. at their bar mitzvahs, and just as much, if not more, than music from like 70 or 80 years ago.
Speaking to Eric Alper about Justin Bieber's big payday here, $200 million for his song catalog. And you touched a little bit on, on how a company like this, I mean, this is a UK-based investment firm. They're out there to make money, leverage this investment and get a big return. And you talked a little bit about how they do that. So they control the songs so they can sell them for advertising. I was reading that maybe some of these songs end up in like video games or other platforms, right? For sure. And it's also the, the, the predicted royalty profit that Justin Bieber gets. For every million streams on Spotify, he makes $4,000 in terms of royalties. Now that's divided up by the record labels and other you know, people that are involved with the songwriting process of it. Um, but over the course of, of a year, he can make anywhere between 25 and $50 million in terms of uh, merchandise or recorded music and things like that. When you take a look at what the stock market has been able to do, when you take a look at the price of gold or silver or GICs or even interest rates, songs are always going to be in most cases, a, a pretty good investment provided that you can pick correctly, just like stocks and everything else. Radio is not going to go away. And even if radio goes away for the next generation, there's always going to be social media sites that are going to be needing music. Look at TikTok or yeah. Facebook or Twitter using these songs. Justin Bieber gets a cut every single time somebody gets their video um, up there on their own site. So it's a pretty good investment that seems to be um, working you know, and emerging every single year. Yeah, and it's a it's a brave new world out there of social media. When you start talking about TikTok and Spotify, every time these songs play on there, it's not only a person listening to a song, but it generates all kind of a, a data stream and uh, special insights into emerging trends and services from the people listening to that song. So that's money too, right? There's value there too. There's money there as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, just having access to, to that kind of data is super important to these companies. But if you, even if you take a look at some of the um, older artists that um, absolutely stormed back up the charts last year with Kate Bush running up that yeah. hill, her song was over 35 years old. They put it in, in Stranger Things 4, and it helped generate over $4.5 million for Kate Bush for a song that seemingly pretty much everybody forgot about, as classic of a song it was. Um, artists like Fleetwood Mac, for instance, um, you know, continued to climb the charts. In fact, Rumors, their big album, is still in the Billboard album chart 45 years later. Wow. So if you have a company like Hypnosis and they're actively working your, your songs, you now have a team of people who's looking to exploit it for as much as possible in the most tasteful way possible. The more popular they can make this happen for you, the more you can charge for tickets, maybe the bigger venues that you play. So you're not relying on your manager and record label to do this for you. You now have a dedicated team of people whose job it is is to make that money back. Um, and that's a really good thing to have, too. And quite frankly, you know, with the way that that life is going in general, Justin Bieber knows that even though that he is massive right now, um, he could be a Fabian, a Paul Anka, where maybe 30 years down the road, people aren't listening to him. Let's just take mm. a look at the bad side of that. Why not take the $200 million now, know what your money is worth, know what your value sure. is worth, and then figure out what, how you can divide it later on to your family and friends. Uh, yeah. If I was his manager, I would say, let's do this. Let's, <laughs> let's, oh, take, yeah. let's take the uh, money. 
Yeah, absolutely. And because artists like Dylan and Springsteen and Neil Young and um, and all of these artists have done that. Phil Collins, Bowie, Sting, Frank Zappa, Leonard Cohen, because they've done it, they've kind of changed the way that we have seen artists, where they're not selling out anymore being on a commercial. It took a generation for people like Neil Young to take a stand and say, you know, I'm not going to do this advertisement, but I will do this. And other artists, yeah. like you would never see Springsteen on Broadway. You would never think about that in 1980. But, you know, 30 right. years down the road, people's priorities change. The, um, the cost of living goes up. Interest rates are, are, you know, up and down. And just the way that it is now, why not take that loyal and worldwide audience that you have and cash in when the going is good? Yeah, and he, he sure cashed in this week for sure. Eric, it's always great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.